John 15, 12 to 17, part three of No Greater Love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that as we hear this word, that we will not delude ourselves and become those who disobey and receive the consequences. But Lord, may we obey what your word says. May we with great joy do what your word says and fulfill this noble term, this noble name that you have granted to us, that we might be called your friends. Thank you, Father, for this privilege. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your grace. And may your grace continue to work in us that we might live up to this name. We want to please you. We love you. And we pray that you will continue to enable us, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. In the name of Christ, amen. Our Lord has, in this discourse, this long discourse, before He is arrested, He has been encouraging us to love each other among many things. And we have already seen in verse 12 that this commandment, the sole single commandment, is the focus to love each other, the way that Christ loved us. This we've seen has to do with God boiling it down to one simple commandment. Though there are other commandments, the greatest commandment and the way to fulfill the greatest commandment to show proof that we truly love God is to truly love one another. And this love will manifest itself in many and assorted ways. But the ultimate way in verse 13 is by laying down our lives for each other. If soldiers, police officers and others lay down their lives for their countrymen, why can't we do so for one another since we belong to the heavenly city? We belong to the heavenly country. We are citizens of heaven. and We belong to each other in the family of God. But not only that, but he calls us in verses 13, 14, and 15, he calls us friends. In order to arouse within us this desire, as true friends do with each other, to be very dedicated to one another. He calls on us as friends in this way to love and serve one another. Verse 13, no, uh, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And 15, a contrast is made between slaves and friends. A contrast in 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends. He's calling us now this name because he wants us with this name to understand the implications of it. Both first in relation to God, between ourselves and God, and then if we are in proper friendship with God, we will be and ought to be in proper friendship with one another. Verse 14, he first says, You are my friends. Well, that is a good statement. That is a kind statement. That's a statement that we would all want to hear. We have a loving and kind, gracious Savior, mediator, redeemer for us, and he calls us friends. You are my friends. That part is very well and good. We all ought to, we all would want to, should want to, be called the friends of Christ. In the scripture, the perfect and model example of this, because the Bible uses it in relation to him, is Abraham. It's Abraham. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham is called the friend of God. Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. The Lord calls Abraham my friend. Further, 2 Chronicles 20, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. The book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 7. Many years later, after the time of Abraham, not only does Isaiah, but Jehoshaphat acknowledges this. Chapter 20, verse 7. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? He's called the friend of God. Furthermore, in James, James chapter 2. James 2, verse 23. 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So Abraham is the friend of God. And so if we are to be the friend of God, then our faith should be like the faith of Abraham's. That is, an enduring faith, an obedient faith, a faith that trusts in God, trusts in the promises of God, anticipates the world to come, the life to come, because he considered himself a stranger and alien on the earth, according to Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16. In Hebrews 11, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the forefathers of the faith, they considered themselves strangers in this world, but citizens of heaven. And as such, they were the friends of God. We have to also clarify When it says that you are my friends, it does not mean that God needs us. 
It doesn't mean God needs us as friends. It means God chooses to relate to us as a friend. But we, in truth, and in reality, we do need God as our friend. God cannot be our foe. He cannot be our enemy, our adversary. God cannot be that for us to have a right relationship with Him with eternal life. That is impossible. God doesn't need us as a friend, but He treats us like a friend. We need Him as a friend. We need to be in a good, friendly, kind relationship with Him. That's what we need. That's why Abraham is called that. That's why we need to be called that. Not only was Abraham um, called that, but Moses was. Not in this explicit way as it was with Abraham, but in similar ways. Look first at the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. And we'll see from these examples of Moses how it bridges the gap between Abraham, Moses, and us. Exodus 25, 21-22. Exodus 25, 21-22. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Where the ark of the covenant was placed was in the most holy place, in the most inner place of the sanctuary, of the temple, first tabernacle, then temple. That inner room, that inner sanctuary called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. That is where God spoke, God fellowshiped, God communed with Moses or Moses communed with God. This is the way this relationship was. This was a very exclusive relationship between Moses and God. No one else is said to have done this. No one else had this great privilege of a close voice, a near voice and presence of the Lord with whom he could talk, with whom he could hear, he could ask questions, he could know whatever God wanted him to do. Because God says, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. 33 now, Exodus 33, 7. Exodus 33, 7 to 11. He illustrates furthermore and actually uses the word friend here. 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. 
When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. This is practically on the exterior of the tabernacle, the way it used to work. And it concludes in verse 11 by saying, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. This was the friendship that Moses had. And this friendship is actually quite unique among all the prophets. We find this in Numbers 12. The book of Numbers, chapter 12, 6 to 8. This unique friendship, relationship that Moses had with the Lord is unique among all the prophets. Numbers 12, 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? The prophets, they have the word of the Lord in visions and dreams and dark sayings. A dark saying is a riddle or a proverb. That's what the Bible means by dark saying. It's not a plain, forthright expression. Do this or don't do that. It's a dark saying. It's in a riddle, and then the prophet has to figure it out with the help of the Lord, but he has to figure it out, and then the prophet has to explain it to the people in the riddle or in the proverb, and then the people have to figure it out what it means. Or as we say more commonly in the New Testament, in a parable. Parables are dark sayings. It needs an explanation and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, to help the hearers to understand correctly the true meaning of the parable. And that's what a dark saying is here. However, with Moses, God didn't speak that way. God spoke plainly, forthrightly. Furthermore, he spoke mouth to mouth. That is, very close to each other, mouth to mouth, he says, even openly and not in dark sayings. This is how Moses related to the Lord as a friend. We also notice, don't forget verse 8. Verse 8 will be applicable in a few moments because Christ says, no longer do I call you slaves. Moses is here both described as a friend, but also as a servant or slave of the Lord. He's described as a friend and a slave of the Lord. The two are true side by side. The, true are, the, uh, the two of them are true in their own context, in their own sense. Now, if this is true of Abraham and this is true of us uh, or Moses, it should be true of us this way. Abraham, Moses and us. How so with us? We have it here in John, but we also have it in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 
14. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. This benediction and prayer of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Among the blessings we have, we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, communion of the Holy Spirit, relationship with the Holy Spirit, communication with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit to us and us to the Spirit, as a man with his friend, fellowship with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Of course, the Bible doesn't mean it in the charismatic way, charismatic or Pentecostal way. It doesn't mean it that way. This fellowship of the Spirit is by means of the Word of Christ. That's how the Spirit communicates with us and assures us of the love of God. But also, we have 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. This fellowship between friends. 1 John 1, 1 to 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. The fellowship that the apostle wants for the church, for all the churches, is to have alongside the apostles. And what is this relationship that the apostles have? They have it with the Father and the Son. That is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Abraham, Moses, the apostles, and the church. We're all encouraged to have this relationship, friendship, with God. Yet, Christ said in verse 14, John 15, 14, This is true of us if you do what I command you. It's impossible to have this communion, this fellowship, friendship, relationship with God and one another if we don't do what Christ commanded us to do. If we're not loving each other and all the implications of loving each other. It is another if-then clause, if-then sentence. If you do what I command you, then you are my friends. Or as he fronted, you are my friends, to put the hope and the anticipation in front of us, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We cannot be called the friends of Christ, the friends of God, if we disobey Christ. If we disobey Christ, we're not his friends, we are his enemies. That's how it works. Obedience has to be joined with this name, this honorable name, friend. Obedience. He's been speaking of obedience to his commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Obedience in terms of fruit or fruit as an example of obedience, he says this in John 15. In John 15, verse 4, 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless, this is the condition, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six, if if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7, if, if you abide in me my word, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. He has several conditions here, if then conditions. And this all relates to obedience. If obedience is manifested in our life, then we can truly have this honorable term or name, friends, spoken of us. We would be the friends of Christ. Only if obedience matches the name. He does not mean that we all automatically will have perfect obedience. This is not the subject matter at hand. He's not talking about that. But he is describing the fact that we ought to be striving for it. Like Matthew 5.48. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So then, we may be his friends, we are called his friends, if we do what he commands us. Verse 15. Verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. He does not call us slaves any longer. What does Christ mean by this? In what sense does he mean that he does not call us slaves? It may be in one or two ways. One or two ways. One, he may be referring to us as slaves, slaves of sin, because when we were slaves of sin, like he said in John 8, In John 8, when he said that whoever commits sin, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. John 8, 34. He no longer calls us slaves, slaves of sin, because when we were slaves of sin, we did not know what our heavenly master expected of us. We didn't know. We didn't care to know. But now that we're no longer that, we are his friends we therefore know what the will of the Master is in heaven. 
That may be one way to take it. Another way to take it is no longer do I merely or exclusively call you slaves right now, currently. Currently, I don't only or merely call you slaves. I have an additional name for you, and that name is friends. We may also take it that way. If we take it one of these ways or both of these ways, it matches the rest of Scripture, and it does not violate this verse. We have to consider the rest of Scripture because some interpreters, taking verse 15 out of context, they say, we are not slaves of God, we're not slaves of Christ, therefore, there is nothing that our Master in heaven has for us to do. There's no obedience. There's nothing to follow. We should not look at God or Christ as a master. That's cruel. That's cruel and unusual punishment. That's not right. Nobody is a slave of anybody, especially in free countries. In free countries, nobody should be a slave, and we shouldn't even use that in a positive way. That's the way many, many interpreters take verse 15. We are not slaves in any sense to God, especially Christ, since Christ is always in their mind a very loving Christ, in a very unbiblical way, loving Christ. But that cannot be our interpretation. Why is it that we cannot say there is no way that currently that we have to or should remove this word slave to identify our life? our Christian life. As Christians, as regenerated individuals, born-again individuals, can we still, in some way, call ourselves slaves of Christ? And shall we call our Lord, our Lord Christ, our Master? Is it right and good for us to refer to Him as our Master so that that implies we must obey Him? We must know His will and do His will. Is that true of us currently, post-conversion, after we have embraced Christ by faith and repentance? Yes. Now, let's seek to show that and to prove that. That indeed, we have to follow Christ as our Master. Let's just go in canonical order from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. Matthew 25:21 On the day of judgment when we are held accountable when Christ holds us to account and he settles accounts he presented a parable the parable of the talents of money the coins the parable of the talents of money what does he say to the slaves who did well 25:21 His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. We'll read to 23. The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is on the day of judgment. 
And normally when this passage is cited, it's often not quoted verbatim. And some translations of the Bible render it good and faithful servant. And often when preachers are preaching and alluding or referring to this passage, they will refer to the people of God who were faithful as good and faithful servant. They avoid the use of the word slave because the word slave has a bit of a sting to it, especially because of history, world history and U.S. history. It has a sting to it, and that's why they avoid it. They don't like it because of history, and they don't like it because of its Christian contemporary implications. So they avoid the word slave. But it is the word in the Greek language, and some translations correctly render it as slave. Slave, good and faithful slave. When then is Christ calling us slave? He's calling us slave on the day of judgment in heaven. That must mean it's not wrong to be considered the slave of Christ. If he's calling us that, because we end up being called good and faithful slave. Next, we go to Romans 6. Romans 6.15. Romans 6.15 to 23. This chapter entails the abuse of the word grace. Grace. People abuse and distort the biblical meaning of grace, love, and other virtues like this. And so the apostle addresses this abuse, this uh, distortion of the word grace. We pick it up in verse 15, 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." Sin produces death. Sin produces death in verse 16 also. Sin resulting in death. But the opposite of that is to obey resulting in righteousness. He uses this metaphor of slavery in verse 16, slaves for obedience. Verse 17, slaves of sin. Verse 18, slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. 
Verse 19 also, slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Verse 20, slaves of sin. Like Christ said in John 8, 34, he who commits sin, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. It's one way or another. Verse 22, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. When we were slaves of sin, only death awaited. Now that we are enslaved to God, we have benefit, sanctification, outcome of eternal life. Doesn't he say slaves to righteousness? And then finally, he says in verse 22, enslaved to God. When we are enslaved to God, we are enslaved to God like a loving master, not a brutal, cruel, dictatorial master, but a loving master who does still issue commandments. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He still issues commands, but these commands are from a loving master to a compliant, humble slave. Not a slave who's like a wild ox, but a slave who is like a domestic, domesticated ox, a tamed ox. That's the way we are in our relationship to God. Now, we do have more examples. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9. Ephesians 6, 5. The Apostle Paul addresses literal slaves and literal masters. But we note how he compares them. Literal slaves, literal masters, how they should treat each other, and then our relationship to this issue. 6.5 Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We are called here slaves of Christ, verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. That is, willingly, happily, the slave obeys Christ. And in verse 9, both earthly slaves and earthly masters have a master in heaven. That means we have a master in heaven. Therefore, if we have a master in heaven, we should follow his will, his commandments. The same is said in Colossians 4, verse 1. Colossians 4, 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You too have a master in heaven. And Jude, verse 4. 
Jude verse 4. Jude deals with this very heresy of saying, we are no longer slaves, therefore we can live as we please. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What do these certain persons, this is Jude's way of referring to false teachers, false disciples, false believers, they creep into local churches unnoticed, but not unnoticed by God, unnoticed by the people of God, at least initially, but not unnoticed by God. They are ungodly. They turn grace into licentiousness. Licentiousness means a license to sin. They say, well, God's grace is upon us. God's grace is in us. Therefore, we can have, and we do have, a license to sin, a license to do wickedness, a license to continue living the way we used to live. But Jude says that's not the case. False teachers say that. They not only say that, but they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is inescapable. How can we call Christ Master and Lord and live as we please in our sins? We can't. He's still our Master and Lord, according to Scripture, even the New Testament Scripture. So though we're not slaves in any negative sense, we are slaves in a positive sense, according to the New Testament. But not only that, I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Whatever Christ as a mediator, as God incarnate, as the Word made flesh, He doesn't mean all things in terms of omniscience, everything that God knows, past, present, and future. He does not mean all things in that sense. He means it in the limited sense of what knowledge we must have of God for our salvation in the gospel, according to the word of God, illumined by the Holy Spirit to our hearts. This is the all things he means. This is what we have known. Christ explained it to his disciples and Christ received all that from the Father. So first on the external, and then we'll take it in the internal sense. The external all things, this is the great privilege that we have originating in God the Father by means of the Son to His church. All things. He says in John 3, John 3, 31 to 36. John 3, 31. Here we read, 331. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Who is the he who comes from above, from heaven? It's Christ. Verse 32. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness. 
and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Christ is the one who's from above, from heaven. Christ is the one who has seen and heard, and he is the one who testifies, verse 32. He is the one who has the seal of God, that God is true, has set his seal to this, that God is true. Um, That is, if Christ communicates it to us and we believe it, then we are admitting that God is true. And then 34, he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The Son speaks the words of the Father, and also the Son gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. What are these all things? Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The gospel, that is the all things that he gives to us. Chapter 12 also, 1244, John 1244. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Whatever words Christ preached, whatever words Christ preached and informed and guided the apostles to write, these are the words that are delivered into the world that produce eternal life. They came from the Father to the Son to his apostles and then to us, the gospel. So these words of the gospel, the truths of the gospel, Whatever is necessary for our salvation and sanctification. Whatever that has been clearly revealed to us as the friends of Christ. That's the external part. That is the hearing of the word of Christ. But then there's an internal component to it also. The internal component. In John, Christ quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah John 6 John 6:45 The internal secret mysterious work of the Holy Spirit John 6:45 It is written in the prophets and they all shall be taught of God everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me The prophet Isaiah Isaiah 54 
13, and also the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 34. And th- th- these verses are also cited, at least Jeremiah is cited in Hebrews 8, 11. This means that the Father works inside of us as His children to make us learn and believe in the gospel. These are the all things that the Father ensures that we will believe. Now, 1 John. 1 John chapter 20, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John 2, 20. 1 John 2, 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. You all know, or you all know what? Why does he say because of this anointing? The anointing is the work of the Holy Spirit. Because we have this anointing of the Spirit, we all know. Verse 27. Verse 27. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. The anointing from the Spirit, this anointing, causes us to have no need for a teacher because the anointing teaches us all things. No need for a teacher in what sense? Does it mean no need for a teacher in the local church? No need for pastors or elders? No, it means no need to understand this gospel that you have already believed and embraced. God has already convinced you of the gospel. You already believe in this gospel. And we don't need to teach you that again because it has already done its work in your heart and life. Further, we find this a similar statement in Jude. Jude verse 5. Jude 5. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. He reminds them, though you know all things once for all. You already know whatever you need to know for your salvation and godliness in the Bible, in the gospel. That's what he means by you know all things. How did that come about? Well, the all things of the Word of Christ were taught to us by the Spirit of Christ so that in our heart we know all things. Not omnisciently, not every detail of the universe, past, present, and future, nothing like that. It's all things in relation to the Gospel of Christ or the Word of Christ. The Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ have changed us. So, Because the word of Christ has changed us like this, we are his friends. Since we were just in Jude, look at 3 John 
3 John 13 and 14. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Who are the friends? The friends from one church or other churches greeting the friends of these other ones. So friends greeting friends from church to church or churches to churches. He's using the terminology of John 15, 15. So we are friends, privileged to hear the word of Christ and have the spirit of Christ work in us to redeem us. But we should also ask further, though we have been asking this question, how does it look? How is this manifested in daily life in the local church? And for that, let's go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation." among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, 
so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ." risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. The apostle exhorts us in verses 1 to 4, and then teaches us that the supreme example, the supreme model is Christ in verses 5 to 11. In 12 to 18, he urges us to press on and to be distinct from the world, from the people of the world. Then, in 19 to 24, he shows us the example of Timothy, and 25 to 30, the example of Epaphroditus. These were real men who really and genuinely had concern for the churches. He even commends Timothy in a way that he did not commend Epaphroditus. Though Epaphroditus was very faithful and godly, he said, Of Timothy, he says in verse 20, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That is the fundamental issue or problem. In verses 1 to 4, And 12 to 17, he urged us not to be seeking after our own interests as friends in the body of Christ or family in the body of Christ. It shouldn't happen that way. He could only find one. This is the Apostle Paul. Only Timothy among all of the many disciples. Only Timothy to be the one who was a model of selfless love toward others. Timothy. So shall we not be like Timothy? If he is a standard, his example, let's all be that way toward one another. And finally, we go to Colossians 3, 3, 12. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. 3, 12. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. 
just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. We who are chosen of God, we ought to manifest and reveal the work of God in us, being holy, beloved, having a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, whatever complaint we have against each other, just as Christ forgave us. Central to it all, love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love of God manifested by loving our neighbor as ourself. Love. And the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the word of of Christ working in us so that we help by encouraging and admonishing one another, all in the name of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father. Let's be this way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.